Welcome to Telling Future Generations, the radio ministry of Child Evangelism Fellowship of Illinois. Now here's your host, Dr. Katrina Forseth, a missionary serving as state director of CEF of Illinois. Hi, and thanks for listening to Telling Future Generations. As some of you may know, I recently finished my doctorate in biblical studies and theology about a year ago. It took me 16 years to complete from start to finish, which included my dissertation. One of the reasons why, though, it took me so long was because I was struggling with my topic, my thesis for my writing project. But a few years before I even began my research, I came across a book that intrigued me. It was a book that I purchased a while back that had sat on my shelf for years, collecting dust. The book was by David Limbaugh, a dedicated a Christian lawyer who's actually the brother of Rush Limbaugh. David wrote a book called The Emmaus Code, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. It was a solid, well-written, Christ-centered book that begins with the account of Jesus's journey with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The scripture records in Luke 24 that as Jesus walked and talked with the two of them on that first day of the week, which was Resurrection Day, the very day that Jesus arose from the grave, that Jesus, even though these men did not recognize him at first, Jesus was reminding them of all that the scriptures had said from the law of Moses to all the prophets that the Christ must suffer first and then enter into his glory. In other words, Jesus was reteaching these two Jewish-born disciples that all that was recorded in the Old Testament scriptures, the first 39 books in the Hebrew canon, which included the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and in all the prophets, the writings like Psalms and Proverbs, was ultimately in all of its promises and prophecies all about him, Christ the promised one, from beginning to end. After David Limbaugh laid out his book's thesis concerning the Emmaus Code found in Luke 24 that testifies to Christ, David proceeded then to walk through the Old Testament scripture book by book, hitting the highlights, the mountain peaks, how each book of the Bible points to Christ and his personal work in a multitude of ways. One of the sources that David Limbaugh cited in his work was a long-ago written book by Sidlow Baxter, who was an Australian pastor, theologian, and a missionary evangelist. The book, which has long been out of print, is called The Master Theme of the Bible. In Sidlow's book, he makes a strong argument that this book, the Bible that we hold in our hands, is the very Word of God. It's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative. Sidlow cites in his opening chapter many proofs that the Bible is an infallible Word of God through a manifold, a plethora of internal and external proofs such as the reliability of the manuscripts, the specifically fulfilled prophecies and promises that all point to Christ, the supernatural nature of the scriptures, such as miracles, and also the historical, cultural, and even archaeological verifications that has been revealed to us down through the years, down through the centuries, through research and discovery. There is also the life-changing nature of this book, that it is alive and active, as the scripture says, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word, God's law, as it says in Psalm 19, is perfect. It enlightens the eyes and converts the soul. There's no question that God uses his word to accomplish his work by and with the empowerment and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Simply put, this book, God's word, changes lives. And if all that were not enough, you have the recorded testimony throughout the New Testament authors and the authority verification of Jesus, God, the eternal son himself, who upholds that the Old Testament scriptures are indeed the very word of God. Yet to all this, Sidlow Baxter would add yet one more internal proof 
and that is the unity of Scripture that is unveiled through progressive doctrinal revelation. Now, I know when you first hear that word progressive, it may not sound all that great, but theologically, it's speaking how a doctrinal truth is unfolded throughout all of Scripture, beginning like a small acorn that then grows to a full-size oak tree standing in all of its breadth, height, and glory. All that the oak tree ever was or will be was already present in the beginning within that single acorn. There was nothing new that was added. It was just not all visible and made clear at its inception. And so it is with progressive doctrinal revelation. Biblical truths are unfolded and grow in their doctrinal clarity and radiance like the first gleam of dawn until it grows and is made clear and more visible to the full light of day like the new day sun. There are many doctrinal truths or themes that are woven together that can be traced throughout Scripture. But Sidlow Baxter would argue, and I absolutely agree with him, that the master theme of the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ revealed as the Lamb of God. The theme of the Lamb of God runs like a thick cable throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It would be a grave doctrinal error to say that progressive doctrine moves from false to true or even from true to more true, but rather doctrinal revelation unfolds from true to that same truth revealed throughout Scripture in all of its fullness. It's like what St. Augustine, the early church father theologian, said, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Interestingly, it's the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that is the most clear in connecting all the dots that the revelation of Jesus Christ is that Christ, the promised one, is whom the whole scripture is all about from beginning to end. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. Not only is Jesus Christ revealed in the book of Revelation as the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but also as the Lamb of God slain, who has redeemed us to God by his blood out of every tribe, tongue, kindred, people, and nation, and is to be worshipped and blessed forever as the Lord God and the Lamb seated upon the throne. So where does this unfolding progressive doctrinal teaching of the Lamb of God begin? Well, not in the book of Revelation at the end, or even in the Gospel of John one twenty nine, where you see John the Baptist point to Jesus saying, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. No, the doctrinal theme of the Lamb of God begins all the way back in the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis. Sidlow Baxter lays out in his book 10 major passages in Scripture that together depict the master theme of the Bible, the Lamb of God. He first begins in Genesis 4 with the necessity of the Lamb, and he moves to Genesis 22, God's provision of the Lamb, and in Exodus 12, the slaying of the Lamb, then in Leviticus chapter 4, the character of the Lamb, Isaiah 53, the Lamb is a person. In John one twenty nine, the New Testament, Christ is a typified lamb. In Acts 8, Jesus the lamb is the promised Christ that goes back and references actually Isaiah 53. Then in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 through 21, it speaks of the resurrection of the slain lamb. And then you come to the last book in Revelation 5, you have the worship and the enthronement of the lamb. And the last two chapters of Revelation, Revelation 21, 22, you have the everlasting kingship of the Lamb. Even though I do agree with Baxter's list, I would add yet an additional passage, Genesis 3, which is a passage before the narrative account found in Genesis 4 of Cain and Abel, which Baxter described as 
the necessity of the lamb. This first passage, or what I call a preview passage found in Genesis 3, is short and it's a bit unclear, yet it points to the first picture of the work of the lamb, the promised one to come. It takes us all the way back to the beginning in Genesis with the account of Adam and Eve in the garden and then how sin came into the world and death by sin that resulted in the first death, the first bloodshed, and the first animal skin sacrifice, which was actually the first atonement made, a covering of sin for his people through bloodshed for sins deserved penalty of death and a covering given, imputed for from an innocent, without sin, righteous other that was provided by God himself. This first passage of atonement for sin found in Genesis 3 is nothing less than a beautiful gospel picture, a portrait snapshot of the promised one to come in his person and his work. Albert Baxter in his book begins the list of 10 major doctrines of the Lamb with Genesis 4, the account of Cain and Abel that first speaks to the necessity of the Lamb. You know, many theologians have long debated why Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's rejected. Was the difference about the right offering, the right way, or the right faith? The answer is yes to all three. Genesis 4 actually describes it as an offering, whereas in the New Testament in Hebrews eleven four, it reflects back on the account in the Hall of Faith chapter describing Abel's offering in the terms of a sacrifice made by faith to be declared right with God. Because of this, and other internal word usages concerning the word sin in Genesis 4, many theologians believe that Genesis 4 offerings were not simply thank offerings, but were rather sin offerings offered by faith in the promised one to come as an atonement of sin. You know, this begs the question, how did Abel know what was the right offering offered in the right way in the right faith to be accepted with holy God? And at the same time, why did God hold Cain accountable for not doing what was right and not following the only way for him to be accepted with God? I am convinced that the answer to the Genesis 4 question is rooted in the previous passage found in Genesis 3. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, who is a theologian and Bible teacher, he states it like this, Abel's sacrifice involved blood and therefore testified to the death of a substitute. He was coming to God as God had shown he must be approached. When God killed animals in the Garden of Eden and then clothed Adam and Eve with their skins, God was showing that because sin means death, innocent victims must die in order that the sinner might be pardoned. The sacrifice pointed forward to Christ, he said. When Abel came with the offering of blood, he was believing God and was looking forward to the provision of the deliverer. When Cain brought his fruit, he was rejecting the provision. Here we see laid down for us from the beginning not only a gospel picture of the necessity of the Lamb, but also a simple yet profound gospel truth pointing to God's only provided way of atonement. Atonement in the Bible means a sacrifice for sin always includes two parts. First, it includes bloodshed. You know, some people, they get uneasy when you speak of biblical atonement requiring the shedding of blood. But that is what the Bible teaches from cover to cover. For life is in the blood, the Bible says, and the penalty for sin is death, which means life given, bloodshed as a penalty for sin. Some ask, why the blood? The answer is simple. That's how bad sin is and the punishment for sin. Pastor Anthony Carter, in his book, Blood Work, How the Blood of Christ Accomplishes Our Salvation, says it like this, 
The shedding of blood is a result of sin, he says. We have no record of the shedding of blood and no mention of death before Adam and Eve sinned. Sin brought death and thus the shedding of blood. In fact, he says, it seems God caused the first blood to be shed in response to Adam and Eve's sin. He then continues, in other words, without sin, there would be no shedding of blood. But likewise, the Bible reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. However, this bloodshed is only the first half of the atonement. The second part of the biblical concept of atonement in Scripture always includes a covering for sin. Not only bloodshed, but a covering for sin that depicts being made right, accepted before holy God, based on faith, not in our works, but in what God has done and what God has provided and promised to do for us on our behalf. So even here, back in the beginning in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, we have a beautiful gospel picture together that proclaims the same doctrinal truth, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, that salvation is the same. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ the promised one alone, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end. A friend of mine, Dr. Robert Morgan, an author and Bible teacher, said it like this concerning the master theme of the doctrine of the Lamb. He said, every lamb in the Old Testament, whether one, many, or thousands upon thousands, each one of them was a little picture pointing ultimately to Christ, the Lamb of God. I don't know about you, but even here at the beginning in Genesis, with the first major passage of the necessity of the Lamb, it makes me just want to stop, ponder, and think about, and then praise the Lord for all that he has done in pointing us to the Lamb. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you do join us again next week as we continue to look at the master theme of the Bible, the doctrine of the Lamb. Thank you for joining us today for Telling Future Generations, the radio ministry of Child Evangelism Fellowship of Illinois. To learn how you can partner with Child Evangelism Fellowship to reach children in your community, please call 309-688-9699 or visit cefofillinois.com. Please join us again next week at the same time for Telling Future Generations.